Welcome to the official Scottish Rugby podcast with Caroline Blair and Chris Patterson. In light of the news at the weekend of the passing of Doddy Weir, this episode will be dedicated to celebrating the life of this incredible, incredible man. To do so, we're joined by two of his close friends, by Jill Douglas, the Chief Executive of the My Name's Doddy Foundation, and of course, Jim Telfer, the man who coached Doddy at club, country, and onto British and Irish Lions level. So thank you both so much for joining us uh, today. Jill, the, the global outpouring of love, of appreciation, of admiration, of shared grief that we've seen for Doddy, that must, I'm sure, come as, as, as a comfort to Cathy, to the family, and to those like yourselves who, who knew him so well. Absolutely. And it, it, it's not really surprising because we've seen that uh, outpouring of of love and respect for Doddy, um, not only through his life as a rugby player, but certainly in the last five years since he shared his diagnosis and was so candid about the effects of motor neuron disease. Um, people have um, responded in an incredible way to support him, to support the foundation, but also um, in the last few days just to support to show their support for Cathy and the family. It's been it's been incredible. And yes, indeed, it is some comfort to them. Of course, we're all heartbroken because he leaves a huge hole in our lives. And he was such an incredible character, larger than life, um, and somebody that we were all, um, you know, incredibly fond of. Um, and, and so it's difficult to imagine life without Doddy. Um, that said, um, you know, he leaves an incredible legacy. But but yeah, he's... he's um, He's enormously missed, not just by the, the huge public outpouring of grief, but certainly very personally by Cathy, Doddy, and of course their close friends and family. And our deepest condolences go to Cathy, to Hamish, Angus and Ben too, to all of Doddy's family and close friends. And I think the, the thing with Doddy Weir is that you never forget that moment. If you were privileged enough to have met him, you will never forget that moment when you did first meet him. Jim, take us back to that time for you when, when you first met Doddy. Well, actually, it's a long time ago, <laughs> and I can't even remember it, but I see clips on, uh, on TV and hear people speaking. And uh, uh, he came to us uh, at Melrose when he was about 18. And uh, I, about the same time I had joined the club, uh, to help coaching. I was a I was headmaster at Hoyk at the time and I wasn't supposed to be doing any coaching. That was the deal I'd made with the region. <laughs> uh, so I thought club coaching wasn't too bad as, as time off for international coaching. So I, I, 1989 or 88, something like that. Uh, and Chris may not believe this, but, uh, or, but Melrose and Scotland have always had the same problem or what did when I was playing and then coaching. We never could get big enough forwards mm. uh, to compete with the opposition. <laughs> this is still true with Scotland. Mm. Uh, but we have produced some huge fellows like Doddy. And so uh, we always struggled against teams like Gala and Hoyk at the club level. And England, of course, and, and South Africa, and these teams, uh, the All Blacks and so on, at the international level. So when it didn't strike me straight away, it struck me later. Here was a man, six foot seven, or a boy, six foot seven, thin as a gazelle, as, uh, <laughs> and athletic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked it out that uh, 
what we could do with him was what other teams had done to us. Mm. You know, he could win line-up ball, he could prevent the opposition winning line ball, and he could run and pass and, and so on. So uh, it was a it was a blessing that when Doddy came down from Corto uh, Ferry in his car towards Gala, <laughs> he took a left fork <laughs> towards Melrose a bit, you know, uh, like, you know, the eureka moment for him <laughs> when he came through Lang Lee, you know, to Melrose. And so that's where the story begins and that's, uh, it goes on from there. But to be quite honest, I was not involved with Doddy all the time because I wasn't involved with Scotland when he was involved with Scotland until maybe, well, the end of the World Cup, 91, mm -hmm. I stopped then. And then in 97 with the Lions and then later, when I, uh, I got involved again, so, uh, but at Melrose I was involved quite a lot and uh, with them from about 88 on to 94 or something like that. I must say there's a, there's a great story about, about you as well, uh, when, when you met Doddy early on as, a, as a, a young cub player and he was signing the back of the jerseys, he was putting names, what, what was that story, oh, tell that, us that, that one. I forgot about that, that was a, well it was, it was a nod to how like good a tourist Doddy was, and then it was 1999, my first international tour, we toured South Africa, it was a non-cap tour, um, and we went to South Africa, and I was just stepping out, I was playing for under-21s at the time, and stepping, as an amateur player, still playing for gala, uh, and it was a nod to the old days where the first thing you got when you went on tour was your kit issue, and but there was a, a standard kit issue, but there was also a Doddy kit issue, and <laughs> Doddy had these um, t-shirts made up with a nickname on the back, uh, and mine's was Twiggy. Absolutely <laughs> like, Twiggy, aye. It was just because I was stick then. I thought it was a bit ironic, don't you give me that one? But he had a nickname that he made up for everybody, and there were certain times in tour you had to wear your, 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 um, your t shirt. And I, I genuinely think he deliberately made it about a 3XL as well, just to accentuate the Twiggy. So. But he was uh, just an incredible person. It's really hard, isn't it, to find the right thing to say? And I think a lot of people have thought this over the last few days. and whether it's the right thing to say or the right thing to write because uh, there's a pressure because he's such a wonderful person. Um, I remember when he, well, just when he must have taken that left fork in the road to go to, uh, to go to Melrose because his dad, Jock, played for Gala and his younger brother, Tom, played for Gala. I played with Tom for a long time for Gala and actually one of the things I was thinking about for the last few days was kind of my first knowledge of Doddy and you know, obviously knew him as a player, but I remember Melrose playing Gala, and I've actually looked back, it's October 95, and Tom was coming through as a number eight, who's uh, in Scottish schools, and Scottish under-21s, and, and, and a quality player. Doddy was already an established international by now, and one of the build-ups to the Melrose Gala game was Weir versus Weir, and Tom Weir's coming after his big brother, and he's going to shoo him up, and filled my heart with pride, because he was playing for Gala at the time. <laughs> And I remember going to the Green Yards to watch a game and, and Doddy just battered Tom. <laughs> he just clipped the first card two or three times, clipped him across the year. Melrose eventually won pretty well, but it was like, for all the fun and hilarity you had with Doddy, he was hard, he was tough. I remember clips on Border TV of this guy looked up to him and he thought, oh, he's such a fun person, fighting. A Melrose versus Jed game, scrapping, fighting in sevens. Like, for all he was happy and cheery, he was a tough, tough competitor as well. And, I don't know, it's just another string to his bow, so it's a, a wonderful person. And we'll keep, we'll keep bringing the rugby element in, of course, as well. Jill, you knew him in, in so many capacities, and of course your husband Carl, very close friends too. Talk about your relationship with Doddy and, and, and the man that you knew 
Uh, I've known Doddy, well, I go back to our teens, you know, a bit like Jim back in the back in the memory bank uh, to sort of remember those first meetings. But he was, you know, on ponies and horses uh, around young farmers and pony club and uh, just the sort of Scottish borders, rural community, the farming community. That's how I first met Doddy. Uh, and and Kathy, I knew as well through sort of point points. So long before she ever met Doddy. So we've kind of all grown up together. And I don't know whether I would thank Doddy for this, but he introduced me to my husband, Carl. Um, I should really thank him for that. <laughs> uh, and we, um, you know, just great friends. And I look back at the many happy memories we all shared together with the kids. Um times at Cortle Ferry with Jock and Nanny, uh, times up at Blue Cairn with Kathy and the boys, um, down in Cheltenham where he would come down to, he loved to come down to the races, but also just many happy times at, at Melrose Rugby Club. You know, we were our formative years there uh, and made the most brilliant friendships and that's what rugby gives you so often. And Doddy, of course, was always at the centre of the fun and the, the nonsense and, uh, you know, he, he was mischievous, as we all know, and he liked to play the odd practical joke and he certainly did that with us. Um, but, you know, there was always a party if Doddy was around and he just makes you smile. You can't hardly say his name without smiling. And and he was universally loved because it, you talk about when you first meet him or those who have met him over the years, the number of people who get in touch who say, oh, he came to our rugby club. He spoke at our rugby club. I bumped into him in a filling station. They felt like they knew him. They felt like they were friends with him. And that's that's the way he was. Um, And he never had a degree of self-pity the whole time after his diagnosis. Never had once heard him think why has this happened to me he just thought well it has happened to me so I've now got a responsibility to do something about it but but yeah I just you know sharing a glass or two enjoying each other's company and and getting the most random whatsapp and text messages at all hours of the day and night and he and Carl have this had this great thing where wherever they were in the world they would just phone each other and it could be the middle of the night but they had to pick up and they would just have great banter so yeah I, I, many many happy memories when I think about Big Dodd. It's it's funny because just you know, Jill's talking about the, the number of rugby clubs or places have been, and it's you know it's easy to see the big venues, the big stadiums. The first time I ever played against Doddy, um, <clears throat> this might make you angry, Jim. I think you were maybe coaching at this time. Wasn't in the European circuit. Wasn't the Celtic League as it was then. Wasn't in international. Wasn't it, it was it, it was a wee village outside Gala called Cloven Fords, and they have a, a civic week. <laughs> Jill's giggling, so they have a civic week. And it must have been about, I don't know, 90, it might have been 97 or 98. Now, obviously, Doddy's, well, you know, internationally, and he played in the Civic Week Sevens, just every about 30 of us. And it was like the first time I played against a full international player, Cloven Ford Sevens. There wasn't even any fans there. It was basically a carry out at the side of the pitch. And Doddy played with his, his, his brothers, and we had a team of, you know, just friends just playing. And I thought, like, how. Where on earth would you get that now? Like someone at the top of his game, full international, playing in a, a kind of civic week on, on the pitch at Cadden Foot. I'm going even further away from Clovenford's, a tiny wee football pitch at Cadden Foot, and it just sums him up. Just a, a brilliant man with a massive love for rugby. That love for rugby as well, he, he credits you with, uh, to, you know, to the hugest degree, Jim. In fact, in his book, uh, My Name's Doddy, he said, without Jim Telfer, I wouldn't be sitting here and writing a book about my life in rugby because... I wouldn't have had one. Uh, it's given me far too much <laughs> praise, to be quite honest. Uh, he, uh, I think the, the great thing about Doddy's career was that he had the ability. 
Mm-hmm. And he, he, he was, uh, I mean, he went with the Scottish schools to uh, New Zealand with Rob mm-hmm. Moffat as the coach. It's from Stuart's Melville. But then he, he became a senior player. And, uh, but he, to me, he, it was the environment he, he, we had at Melrose that, uh, that allowed him to develop. And uh, people ask me, what makes good coaches is good mm-hmm. players. You know, mm-hmm. you can make you can make players better, but you can't make a, a kick live at a pig's ear. You know, mm-hmm. and Duddy and a lot of the rest of them, Carl, for example, Craig Chalmers, um, Graham Shield, Steve Brotherston, uh, I better not forget some of them. But <laughs> the Red Paths and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian was a wee bit later, but it it, it was the the I think the the, the team ethos and the work that they did. I mean, I was a hard, quite a hard taskmaster. I must admit, we used to train on Sundays. You know, it's, I mean, it's brilliant. Sci- I mean, I think you might be underplaying that there, Jim. <laughs> I think it's scientifically, it's the best day to do it, you know. But I don't suppose some of the fitness guys will believe that. We used to train on Sundays, uh, so did Scotland, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the amateur professional days. But we used to train on Sundays because... I think Craig's mentioned it. That was because the players had come from all over. Well, in Scotland, they're not all over, but they were uh, on the Saturday. Why not just stay for an extra day and train? So, uh, Doddy had this innate ability, like a borderer. he knew rugby, he could play rugby, he was brought up in the rugby atmosphere, Stuart's Melville, a rugby family. But he. He developed as an international through the club environment, I think, and then he took it on from there. And uh, it was just, I mean, he was, there's a wee story about to get him to come to Melrose because <laughs> there was uh, talk that he would go to Gala because Jock, his dad had played there, poor soul, you know. <laughs> and so uh, around that time, 18, uh, 1988, nine. There's a lot of injuries with backs and, uh, and and shoulders. And Carl had a bad injury. Carl, my, my nephew, had a bad injury. And he, Jock heard about this, and he didn't want Doddy to play in the second row as a schoolboy. Mm-hmm. So I convinced Jock that I'd play him number eight, <laughs> knowing full, full well that probably in three or four years' time he would not be a number eight, just to get him to be there. Mm-hmm. I got him in. Yeah. I know, he didn't play him there often. But he was skillful enough to do both, like he really was. And I think what you're, well, what you're hinting at or, or touching on there, Jim's leadership, now, yeah. your leadership at the club yeah. that creates that environment, but, and so much in the modern days spoken about leadership and leadership courses and how to develop leaders, and it was. It was just built into Doddy. What, what you're describing is maybe not in the, the obvious sense of leadership, but he's, he's driving a culture within a club. Yeah. And the same... Um, Joe with, with the foundation his leadership for someone who maybe wouldn't be seen as a leader mm-hmm. he'll be seen as somebody who's fun people. yeah that is leadership is incredible Joe he did but I, I'm still thinking about Jim and his Sunday morning training sessions because the boys absolutely hated it and of course the Saturday night was always slightly curtailed because they knew that they were going to have to turn up at the green yards on a Sunday and get beasted by Jim um, and so and the, the panic you know I can remember the panic sort of, of oversleeping or not being in the right part of the country to get to the green yards 
And then we'd, oh, my car wouldn't start one day. And Carl was just about, he and Stephen Brotherson started walking to Melrose because they thought <laughs> they were so worried about not getting there. And they thought if they didn't get there, they, if they didn't train, they wouldn't play. And, and of course, all they wanted to do was play. Um, and so I can remember that vividly, these mornings of, of them all phoning rounds long before mobile phones <laughs> ringing, saying, how are we going to get to training? So, And they were never late. <laughs> and, and Doddy, of course, never was a, was he was never a committed trainer, let's be honest. It was never <laughs> something that he looked forward to, but he, you know, he did what he had to do to keep himself. He was naturally very fit. He was naturally gifted, of course, as we know. Um, but as far as being a leader, you know, he, he was never normally a captain, although he did captain Newcastle yeah. Falcons and, and did great success. But what he had was a, an ability to get the real best out of people around him. Mm-hmm. And so certainly from his family, I look at, you know, the way he was with his brothers and his sister and, and the rest of the extended family. They all looked to Doddy for leadership and for a direction and and support and that was very strong you know amongst his friendship group as well but also when you talk about the foundation he, he let us get on with what we were doing but he had an eye on everything and he questioned everything and he challenged everything but every day you were inspired to do as best as you could by him you know and and even now everything that we do every decision I make I think what would he think of this decision what would he be thinking if he was if I was sharing this with him now and that's the way that I'll go on because you know he he had a very clear vision of what, what he wanted and he certainly wanted us to carry on the work that he started but but yeah he, he was he could be quite a hard taskmaster and there was nothing got past him and you get the most random messages he said to me I see we've launched a coffee I said yeah, yeah. he says well I need a coffee grinder how about we do coffee grinders <laughs> I think he was more excited about the red wine than anything, mind you. What, in terms of his involvement um, with the foundation, Jill, you've you've given us an indication there about how involved he was. But in terms of the the, the journey and the creative process and and thinking about the things, and he was clearly very open to the ideas that were put forward to him. And seeing how actively involved he was, especially at the opening and the onset of the foundation, in getting involved, the active side of it. How important was that to him to to make it a about being active too. Yeah, definitely. And and his energy was unbelievable. You know, his his ability to to turn up and do things and see people and and some of it was very visible. And so, you know, he he certainly drove the foundation by his huge character and his commitment and his open, candid way that he spoke about the disease and how it affected him and his family. And, and that many people were touched by that. And it gave huge comfort to people who were given that initial diagnosis. And similarly, we, we created a booklet we shared with when we continue to share with patients about how he was handling the disease on a day to day basis. And I think that openness and the eloquent way he spoke of the disease was really, really helpful to many, many people and will continue to be helpful to many people. But what what people didn't see was what he did quietly behind the scenes and whether it was talking to our team that run the foundation and encouraging them and giving them the support that they needed. But equally, he spent hours and days talking to people privately, um, patients, people living with MND, family members, people with other things happening in their lives where they looked to him as a beacon of hope. He spent, he put so much of himself into it. And sometimes I felt too much and I would sometimes try and pull him back or sometimes say, maybe, maybe this isn't for you or, but he was so committed and he was, he, he, every day he said, I'm lucky, Jill, 
I'm lucky because I look around me. I've got my family. I've got my friends. I'm set here at Blue Cairn. I'm, I'm the lucky one. It's my responsibility to, to be the voice and to help those that aren't as fortunate as me. I mean, if that's not testament to the man, what is? Jim, you spent a lot of time um, at Blue Cairn and, mm. and you'll have seen exactly what Jill's saying and how she's referring to how Doddy was and how he approached his MND diagnosis. What are your thoughts on, on, on that? I actually uh, have great admiration more since he was diagnosed or mm. was diagnosed with MND than before because I, I, I mean, he, as Jill says, everything was a challenge, but he, he, he never felt that he was being punished for anything. Mm. And he, he was so positive. Every time he went up, he had the usual smile on his face uh, and he was, you know, wanting to do things. I mean, he went all over the place uh, to dinners and so on. I once went, to, we once went down the Gatehouse of Fleet, mm. uh, which is in a different time zone to us, <laughs> you know, down near Kirkubri. And Doddy wanted, he drove at that time, mm. and we, we were supposed to stay the night. And uh, seemingly the Weir family had gone to Gatehouse of Fleet for their holidays. Mm. And he was honouring a, a sort of friend down there by going to a do. And uh, he drove all the way down, I mean, and he could drive quickly. Uh, <laughs> And he just sort of sat, well, I sat in the front and Gary was in the back, you know, and he just shut your eyes and they sort of seemed to know the road. We went down there, did the function, and it was about three o'clock in the morning. He says, oh, we're just going home. Yeah. We'll just go home. Uh, so he arrived back in well, Gala, Blue Cairn a bit later, but it was Gala about well, three, two or three hours later. So uh, it was, I, I admire them more going to these functions. Uh, and listening to his story and putting across so eloquently what it was about and what uh, you know what he was going through and what would happen and, and I've seen it since he died. I mean, for for him to say you know you lose your limbs, you lose this, you lose that, and uh, I think it was with uh, uh, Chap Burrows at the time mm -hmm. he was saying that, and it, it it just grew and grew and grew as a person to me, and I mean I'll. People will say, well, what's your memory of him? My memory of him is sitting uh, in his chair up at Blue Cairn with a lovely smile on his face. Mm -hmm. And when you go in, or when I went in, your dog used to bite my, <laughs> bite my knees. And I said to Daddy, what are you doing with this thing? I, I like dogs and dogs. I've had dogs most of my life. And he just laughed and so on, you know. And, and, and He probably he, trained it. Did he, he that trained it? He trained it. It was a lab. <laughs> a labs don't, don't, don't uh, you know, bite people. So his eyes lit up and he was delighted to see you. And uh, well, latterly his speech wasn't too clever, but up until a couple of six weeks ago he could speak. I could understand what he was saying. And, and I, I, I like going up to see him because uh, there's always a, a boyer there. They didn't seem to work, you know. <laughs> uh, and always, I went up about eleven because he was in the chiropractic uh, in the morning, Monday morning, and uh, I would go about eleven, get a cup of coffee with this coffee machine, coffee machine, <laughs> and uh, biscuit and uh, things like that, and 
oh, one of the sons will be having his meal and all oh, the, the rabbit food, you know. And, <laughs> and, and uh, we'd have a conversation, five-way conversation, a four-way conversation. There were always the boys were around when I went up. And Bloody used to ask me, tell them what they should be doing. And, uh, of course, he loved me to tell them they're lazy, whatever, <laughs> you know. And he says, I've told them that. And he, he loved me to tell them what they had to do uh, you know, to make it as if I would know, you know. Nah, they would listen. Jim. They would listen. They though. would listen. But that's that. That sums up as you're describing that. I can visualise it. I mean, sometimes I've been up to see young and the fan was pigs in the house. The, you know, the, 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 the joke in Nanny's farm, the pet right. pig and Doddy would shout at the pig and somebody else would be shouting at Doddy, and it was just this warm family kind of environment that, like, I think he's been able to tap in to everybody around the, the globe really because mm-hmm. of that and you mentioned Smile and you know, go back three weeks to the New Zealand game here where you know presenting the match ball and one of the things I was on the radio that day and I was like I just utterly in awe of, of the moment but the fact that he smiled was, mm-hmm. was amazing like right. utterly that's kind of my last memory mm-hmm. it's like what is dealt with and what, how hard done by he, he's been he would never see it that He's still smiling in that moment because he's so proud of who he is, what he's representing, and and just what what he's achieving. Right, I was I've been in awe, similar to you, Jim, yeah. since he since he's diagnosed. I've been in awe of. I didn't know it was possible for a human to care so much yeah. for other people and not himself. Mm. Like in his actions and his words, and and that'll continue. I think that really highlights the point as well that, um, as I say, anybody who was blessed enough to have have known Doddy and to have spent any time with him, it comes as absolutely no surprise to us that there was this global outpouring of desire to support him in his drive to tackle this horrendous, horrendous disease of motor neuron disease. And Jill, the thing that always struck me with Doddy is the fact that he was surprised by the fact that there was so much love and outpouring for him too. And it, it, there was a real grounded approach to this, but you couldn't not want to help this incredible man. That's true, but I tell you what, he could never get carried away with himself, not if you lived at Blue Cairn and had the boy being happy. <laughs> and friends like Gary and Doddy, uh, Gary and Carl, you know, that, and, and of course that was never his nature anyway. But yeah, that twinkle in his eye in the tunnel before he came out, I was in the tunnel, um, that day at uh, at Murrayfield, and it was special, you know. And and he knew it was a special moment, you know. He he was so determined to be there, uh, and it was incredible. Um, and it, it, you know, it's difficult to put into words, but he had a something magic about him. He used to say when we met, as uh, as a as the board of trustees would meet, he used to say, look around the table, you'd look at Scott and JJ and me, and he'd say. Ah, you never thought I'd still be here. You thought you were buying into something that was going to be over, but we're still here. We're still here, you know. And we wish he still was. We thought he was. We thought he was invincible. We just thought he would carry on forever. And that's the that's the heartbreaking thing, you know. We just he's not carrying on forever. But but he, by goodness me, if ever a man lived his life well, it was Doddy. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, and to Jim for for joining Chris and I today on on the official Scottish Rugby podcast and sharing your. Memories of Doddy. Uh, our deepest condolences, of course, do go to Cathy, to Hamish, Angus and Ben, to Doddy's family and his close friends. And But with his passing, Doddy has now passed the ball on to rugby fans, as we've said, the world over, to continue raising money and awareness of motor neurone disease through the incredible work of the My Name's Doddy Foundation. So to donate, 
or to find out more you can log on to myname5.co.uk.